Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm John Fusco. I'm Eric Lures. And it is September 20th, 2018. On this week's show, Tiff gives us a lineup for the ages, a new breed of mirrorless cameras, how to advertise your short film, and as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. Hey everybody, I'm back. Uh... That's great. That's just like Eddie Nelson in uh, The Color of Money. Oh, great. Yeah. I'm back. Boom. Hit the cue. Um, yeah. I it, It's it's good to be back. Eric and I were just talking for the first time in a week because we're actually remote. We're so remote now. We're not in yeah. the same office all the time anymore. And You could have been in Toronto for the past two weeks I don't, for all I know. Yeah. For all I know, too. You may have been there. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think we might as well just jump right into my experience in Toronto since you didn't thanks for thanks for like staying here behind. we did no we did it I uh you know held down the fort with uh, Liz and I don't even remember what we talked about last week yeah I don't really either oh I know what we talked about I I gotta say I really loved Mandy oh yeah I really liked good it. I really liked it I, yeah. I I gotta say I went on Friday afternoon last week and I was really kind of I don't want to say blown away by it but I was really taken aback by it <laughs> it's hard it's hard not to be like uh, yeah. blown away by something in that movie rather whether blown away means like you liked it or not yeah you're gonna have some sort of something. experience yeah and it was a little bit more like emotional than I expected yeah I guess yeah, um yeah. I really liked that so the predator did not care for oh it. I didn't see it uh yeah did not care for that I one. didn't end up seeing it I was so I had tickets to the IMAX uh, on my last night uh, for Predator, and I was just so wiped, so done seeing movies for a bit. I yeah, think like I needed a little break. It's at the Shane Black quips, and it's a Predator movie. Yeah, pretty much. Well, that sounds that sounds good. It would have been an interesting double feature because I I saw the Image book right before, which is Godard's ah, new movie. Yeah. So to go from like a very intimate Godard screening to like Predator on the IMAX. Uh, with no no break in between, yeah. it was like back to back. That would test your cinephilia yeah. in a big way. It was just too much. <laughs> right. So, what did you see at Toronto? Well, uh, you know, let's uh, let's get into it. I thought, you know, I should start the show by telling you guys a little bit about what I got into last week in Toronto. Uh, let me first say that in terms of film quality this year, the entire roster, nearly head to toe, was absolutely amazing. I saw twelve movies, which is a personal best. Uh, for me, I don't know what it was. Maybe it was because I was alone. <laughs> yeah, over six days. Over six or, days, yeah, like, pretty yeah. much. So I was averaging two or th- two and a half movies a day. Maybe we'll okay. say. Uh, not great at math again, but you know, um, not one of them was bad, which is great. Yeah, which was awesome. Like that very rarely happens. Um, a lot of them were really, really good. Yeah, a lot of them will be like in my top ten list at the end of the year. And I ended up getting a chance to see pretty much everything on my list, including some of the biggest pictures there, which were Roma, First Man, uh, Widows, and Climax. Uh, those are just the ones that I saw. There were a lot of big movies there. They all live up very much to their hype. And um, at the end of the festival, as some of you might know. Maybe I usually try to put together a list or a ranking of some kind, and and let me tell you, picking between First Man and Roma for that first, for that top spot is is really tough. Um, I think if I had to choose, Roma ended up lingering around my subconscious longer than I thought it would. Um, so I'd probably go with that. But First Man is really a theatrical experience, and it deserves to be seen on the IMAX. It's just like spectacle, uh, in 
its entirety. I was just in awe. Like I was in a state reduced to a state of childlike wonder. Um, for sure. I was like, Oh my God, I want to be an astronaut. <laughs> oh my again. God. Where are my parents? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, but if Roma does get a wide release in theaters, then you should all do yourself a favor and leave your couch and go see it in theaters because it is beautiful. Um, I said that like it's the only time I've ever been glad that Emmanuel Lubezki didn't <laughs> DP a film because yeah. it's so intimate and Quaron is uh, it's it's just awesome. It's yeah. a really great movie. Is it like three stories or is it just one story? No, it's just one, just one story. story. Okay. Yeah, just one story. Uh it's a real slice of life yeah. uh movie that takes place in the in I think it's like the 70s, 70s right during the protests yeah. and, um yeah. Lots of movies that took place in the 70s this year, and I'll, I'll get into that a little bit later. But other movies, uh, like Godard's latest The Image Book, uh, defy any sort of ranking system whatsoever, uh, which I guess may be typical when dis- discussing his work, um, especially recently. But this film is more of a visual collage. If that sounds like something you'll be into, then go for it. I think like I left that movie uh, thinking if someone were to seek this movie out, they would be the type to like it, you know? Nobody accidentally goes into a right. Godard film, yeah, probably. Yeah, exactly. No one was going to go into that movie expecting something other than what it is. So if if you are a fan of Godard's recent work, definitely seek it out. The most surprising movie for me uh, was a film called Sunset, uh, and this was by Laszlo Nimes. Uh, I saw this film at 8.30 in the morning, my first day there, and this was after having missed my first flight to Toronto. Oh, wow. I don't think I told you that, but no. I missed, yeah. I missed my flight out of LaGuardia because of two hours of traffic. Wow. Um, I saw a tweet about this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, I didn't know you missed the flight. It was, it was stressful. <laughs> yeah. But luckily, since Toronto is so close to New York, there's flights that go out every, like, hour, Good. basically. So I was able to hop on the next one. Um, but, God, being back in New York, it's just... It's so hard to get anywhere. Yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> the subways, the the cabs, it's just, uh, it's been... Go deep into Queens. For yeah, stuff. yeah. So anyways, I went into this this movie, this uh, movie Sunset, the next morning, pretty blind. And I hadn't seen Neem's previous work, Son of Saul, for which he won the Foreign Picture Academy Award back in 2015. All I knew was that Sunset was a two and a half hour period drama and it was entirely spoken and performed in Hungarian. Now that's an 8.30 a.m. kind of movie. <laughs> yes. That's the, <laughs> like, oh, wow. Okay. That's exactly how I was feeling. A lot like, of coffee oh. that you have around you. For yeah. Yeah. And coffee's tough because, you know, you need your coffee in the morning to get through these movies. But like There's no Tim two Hortons. and a half hours, yeah, yeah. something's going to happen in your bowels. You know yeah, what I mean? That's a good you point. Gotta, that's a good point. I was talking to someone about this in like... Midnight. What's what's better, a midnight movie or a early morning movie? And the midnight movies are tough because you probably had something to drink at that point, and mm-hmm. you're gonna have to sit through like buzzed. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and that you might happens. have to, you know, take a break. Yeah. To to go to the bathroom, and uh, coffee is the same thing in the mornings. But you know. Good point. Good point. Anyways, <laughs> back to sunset. Um, this thing, it just like completely blew me away. I'm so glad I took the risk, which wasn't much of a risk if you've seen Son of Saul because you know the director's ability to take these historical moments and tell them in an entirely modern visual style. And the film does exactly that. It's tense, thrilling, beautifully shot, and features an incredible performance from its lead, Julie Jacob, who uh, I am now in love with, unfortunately. Wow, you did a podcast with them? I did a podcast with them. Did you propose? I didn't. Oh, God. Yeah, I got too nervous. Come on, that's the one question you left off your sheet. (laughs) 
That's a good, that's a good one. Eric. Thank you. Um, another one that might fly under the radar is a film called Birds of Passage, which is a film by Embrace of the Serpent director Ciro Guerra, and it's co-directed by his partner Cristina Gallego. It again is another two and a half hour period piece, but this one is another nail biter. It takes place in the 70s during the beginnings of the Colombian drug cartel era, but it's not just another Escobar tale. This is 100% a Colombian story through and through. It's a reclamation of the genre from the country itself. So you can think of it as 100 years of solitude meets the Godfather. It's that epic, and it's all I'll really say about it. You have to seek it out and see it in February, I think, when it's coming out. So while my top spot goes to Roma and First Man, the Grolsch Audience Award, which has a reputation for picking the Academy Award winners uh, for Best Picture, which went to Peter Farrelly's Green Book, which stars Mahershala Ali and Viggo Mortensen. The trophy is considered a bellwether of sorts for the award season race, even if it is selected by festival movie goers who vote online following a screening. The festival assures they double-check the legitimacy of each vote and that it came from a ticket holder so as to prevent gaming the system. In theory, there is no stuffing of the ballot box, uh, according to TIFF. I personally heard great things about the film, which is kind of like a race-flipped Driving Miss Daisy, with Viggo Mortensen as the driver and Mahershala Ali as the... Uh, uh, the the, the one being driven, the, one the being passenger, driven, the I passenger. guess. Yeah. And it's definitely one of my most anticipated coming out of the festival. That and High Life by Claire Denis, which made its premiere and immediately sold to A24 while at the fest. I heard some crazy things about the Robert Pattinson starring sci-fi, which follows a group of prisoners through deep space as they are subject to the sexual experiments of a mad doctor. <laughs> Subject to them or gift yeah, them? Yeah, I guess it's, I don't know, it's, it's how it's how we'll, we'll see, I guess. But people were saying that, it, or one person I saw said that it's better than 2001, which is... Well, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure about that, but yeah, I'm interested to see it. Yeah, Claire Denis apparently, uh, if you want to keep this on the episode, said that there's a fuck box yeah. in the... In the uh, there's probably film. so you know if fuck bo- fuck boxes are your thing, <laughs> or if you're wondering what it is, yeah. go see this movie. That's that's cool. Um, so one other thing we like to do at festivals is talk about uh, s- sort of similar trends throughout the films, and this year those trends seem to be woman pop stars and historical epics. Uh, sometimes both <laughs> at the same time. Vox Lux, uh, starring Natalie Portman and A Star is Born, starring Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper's first directorial effort, had huge amounts of buzz throughout the festival. A Star is Born especially was favored to win the Audience Award, and people could not shut up about it. Um, It also sparked its own meme within a week of its premiere, which is kind of nuts. The smirking Gaga, I like to call it. Oh, is that when she's in the club in the red? No, it's or like it's like when she turns around and sees yeah, the car. Yeah, when she turns around in the car. I've seen the trailer one. like fifty times. Yeah, have you? Yeah. Do you want to see it then? Or I, I was, do kind of your, see it. Was this out of your own? No, no, like in a theater. Oh, okay. no, not like I'm playing it over yeah, and over again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, like before a movie. <laughs> Great. Well, I would also say that Gaspar Noé's climax is pretty much a musical. Uh, I don't know if it falls into the woman pop stars category, but it's overwhelmingly awesome. It's great. And I think actually one more thing is uh, auteur directors making more palpable films is something that uh, I have been seeing at a lot of the festivals this fall. Uh, like Lanthimos is the favorite is supposed to be very uh, easy to comprehend. Yeah, and he, I don't think he wrote the screenplay for that one. Yeah. So it's, and this and is Climax and Climax tamer is than, tamer. Okay. Yes. There's okay. no like... 
3D ejaculation. Okay. And it's it's shorter and it's um it's intense. It's it goes. I don't know. It's his it's his LSD movie. Okay. So you know how Enter the Void was uh ecstasy and love was love all yeah. these drugs yeah um this, this is, one his... is like hair on fire yeah and this other is like, i don't know what kind of acid gaspar noe is doing but i don't want any part of it yeah. because it it's fucking scary yeah <laughs> your conduit for it yeah and so the final theme i'd like to talk about is marijuana fever or reefer madness which had rained down upon Toronto. There were pop-up educational zones all over the place, offering explanation of different strains of weed, but not giving out free samples, since the pot doesn't become legally, officially, until October. But there were a lot of happy people around, and Canada seems poised to make the big bucks off an industry that will certainly be booming by the next time we roll around to TIFF. So did they give out like educational packets? I didn't actually go into any of them because I was like, oh, this is gonna, this is too, um, I don't know, this is too, uh. But as someone who has never used, didn't you want to yeah, learn about it? No, I, I it was, <laughs> it scares me. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes so sense. I was too, I was too put off. It is the devil's drug. It is the devil's lettuce as they, as <laughs> my grandmother called it. Um, all in all, it was a great trip, and uh, you can stay tuned for great podcast interviews with Godard cinematographer, director Fabrice Arano, the sound design team behind First Man, which is pretty cool, uh, legendary British director Mike Lee, uh, Academy Award winner Lazo Nimes and Julie Jacob from Sunset, which I mentioned earlier, Birds of Passage director Christina Gallego, Jeremy Soliner, director of Blue Ruin, Green Room, and most recently Netflix Hold the Dark, and more. Wow. I'd like to see that one. That one will be on Netflix, I think, on the 28th. Yeah, soon. Yeah. Uh, Eric, what else is, is going on? Well, uh, it sounds like you saw a lot of movies. And I did. Un- unfortunately, although I had canceled my MoviePass subscription service not too long ago, I wonder how many of these I will actually be able to see because I'm very cheap. Well, it's it ain't MoviePass, but the idea remains. Wired reports that the oddly titled Cinemia, not Cinemania, but Cinemia, is mirroring MoviePass's now-extinct unlimited movies for $10 a month plan, except for the simple fact that it won't actually be for $10 a month. Wired reports that the plan closely resembles the plan that made MoviePass famous. See a movie a day, every day, not including 3D or IMAX formats, at whatever theater you want. You can even reserve seats ahead of time. Instead of $10, though, you'll pay $30 a month. So it comes out to a dollar a day, really. Cinemia... CEO Rifat Ogos doesn't expect his unlimited plan to catch fire the way MoviePass did, and that's because he just sees it as another option on a full spectrum of plans. Simias start at $5 for one movie ticket per month, which you could also do, and that's designed to entice as many potential customers as possible. Quote, It's not for everyone. There's no one type of moviegoer. We're all moviegoers. And if you want to target all those segments, which is all the population, I think you need to have every option, even if they want to go every day. So will this be the enticing movie subscription service that doesn't fail? Well, I mean, it's hard to say because we're kind of pessimistic now. Uh, Of course, AMC Stubbs seems to be doing okay, but you never know how long these will last. However, the individual option of paying $5 per movie ticket seems kind of worthwhile, even if it appears tough for a company to survive that when, for example, tickets in New York go for about $15 or more most of the time. However, Sinmia's plan has been operating for years in Europe and has never hit the verge of bankruptcy. So they do have a track record of success. So maybe they have a clearer understanding of the whole landscape of the thing. And they were just, they say, waiting for MoviePass to go down, if you will, before introducing an unlimited plan here in the States. So $30 a month, 
they have a track record. It's worked in Europe for a number of years. They want to introduce it here. I think like MoviePass's problem was that they didn't really take into account what the like threshold was for price per month. Right. So like if thirty dollars is the magical number that will make it profitable for like cinema, yeah, then it makes sense. And I mean, thirty bucks is still a a big a good deal, as you said, for like people who actually go see more than two movies a month. It's yeah, it pays for itself in that sense. It's just. We'll see if it catches on. I think that title needs to change. And that's Cinemia with an S, like Sin, mm. which is odd. You would assume it'd be a C, but uh, they're, that's not what they're going with. Maybe their marketing needs a little work, but they're coming here to the United States next. The original Cinemia? So, I like that. There we go. I like that. Um, also, what happened this past uh, <laughs> week? Well, this past Monday night was the 2018 Primetime Emmy Awards. And yes, it was on Monday and not Sunday night. Because in a break with tradition, the ceremony was moved to the weeknight due to NFL football coverage on the weekend. So the Emmys moved because of football this year. But isn't there football on Monday night too? There is, isn't there? There is. Maybe, my only guess is that the Emmys were like broadcast on NBC and maybe they had football on NBC on Sunday. Yeah, maybe. Oh, Uh, yeah. You know, maybe that's the case. Uh, so there was like an actual programming uh, It wasn't problem. like a competition thing. It no. was like a gotcha. We're, we want to have both. Yeah. Um, and as expected, several popular TV shows were honored and some more than others. If you believe it's a ceremony that only honors well-worn shows that have been on the air for several seasons, you might be incorrect as the Amazon comedy The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel won five awards. But yes, the long, long-running HBO action series Game of Thrones did pick up Best Drama, and that's its third Best Drama Emmy in the past four years. So it's, you know, you who can... Ca- who cares? You can't disqualify. I feel like you should get disqualified after a certain amount of seasons. I don't know. Um, like, yeah. I guess Game of Thrones has been... The last season was good, but it's... You know, when you got other... Give give other stuff a chance. Like, it's the same every year. Yeah. Last year, The Handmaid's Tale won. Right. But uh, it's won the past... Three out of the past four for Game of Thrones. Uh, if you include the Creative Emmy Awards, which happened earlier this month, Game of Thrones has won nine total Emmy Awards this season. Mrs. Maisel had eight. And also NBC's long-running Saturday Night Live, which also won eight, including Best Variety Sketch Series. Also of note is that Henry Winkler of Happy Days, with seven total nominations over his career, finally won an Emmy for Best Supporting Actor in a Comedy Series for his work on the Bill Hader star, Barry. And Barry also won, like, Best Comedy and Bill Hader won, right? Did it, he win Best Actor I think as well? so, yeah. He beat out Donald Glover and Atlanta. Damn. Well, that actually, it's funny you mentioned that because Donald Glover was at the Emmys and also a character by the name of Teddy Perkins yeah. was also there. Who was he, though? I don't know. There's a photo of them together. Yeah. So that must mean that he was not uh, in makeup for the Emmy Awards. That was very creepy. Uh, Have you seen that episode? I I literally watched scenes from the episode after I saw this trending on Monday night. And I'm like, who's Teddy Perkins? I looked. I'm like, what happened to that guy's face? (laughs) And then I started looking into it a little bit. And then I watched the clips of him. It's it's awesome. Frightening. Yeah. It's so good. Uh, Also of interest to our listeners is that the Directing for a Limited Series Emmy Award went to Ryan Murphy for, let me see if I can say this, The Assassination of Gianni Versace, an American Crime Story, and not to fellow nominee David Lynch for his work on Twin Peaks, The Return. Lynch is now still Emmy-less, as he was previously nominated for Best Directing of a Drama Series for the pilot episode of the original Twin Peaks, but he lost to a guy named Scott Winnand for 30-something, if you remember that series, back in the early 90s. Nope. 
All in all, HBO and Netflix tied with 23 Emmys apiece. So as the New York Times reports, for Netflix, the 2018 Emmys represented a triumph, but the result came as a relief to HBO, which can now say that it has technically finished in first place among all broadcast and cable networks for 17 years running. Uh, So it was quite an eventful night for those two. I always, I'm a little less excited about the Emmys. I don't follow television as much as I probably should. And it does seem to be a very recurring group of winners. Well, yeah, that's the thing is like television is really exciting these days and it's like evolving um, just like the stories are getting weirder and weirder and we're seeing like stuff that we often see in movies, but it's just like, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a very exciting landscape. I mean, Lynch always says that like he's done making movies and he just wants to make TV now. Yeah. But I mean, the Emmys don't celebrate that. No, <laughs> at all. And they so, have, yeah, they. I just feel like for that limited series category too, to give it to a, uh, is it was it Law G- and Order? Uh, Gianni Versace. Yeah, and for that category of is uh, wait, what was it's the what was it for uh, American Crime Story. Yeah, American Crime Story. You know, so like those kind of when they do the Law and Order movies. Or some of those American horror it's stories. It's like the American horror story. Don't yeah. they call it limited series? Yeah, not, I, it's you know? like not really a limited series. No, though. it just comes back with like a different yeah. subtitle and sometimes different cast. Well, maybe we'll see a revamp of the Emmys next year, like the Oscars failed reboot. Amen. This year. Least popular show. Least That's popular what they should show. do with the Emmys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyways, here's uh, Charles Hayden with the Gear News this week. Charles. Hello, this is Charles Hain. I'm here with Tech News for Indie Film Weekly, September 20th, 2018. Although this is more old school because it's mostly just straight up gear news without any real techie stuff that's not gear related. All right, top gear news this week, of course, and honestly it's like the last three weeks because I've been out with a newborn, Canon and Nikon have finally released full frame mirrorless camera bodies. So to get an idea of how big news this is, a little backstory is probably in order. Still cameras have traditionally used larger sensors than motion picture cameras. So we call the motion picture film sensor size Super 35, and we call the still sensor size full frame. When the big digital cameras first came out, they had mirrors in them to mimic the original design of a film camera that used a mirror, the single lens reflex, the SLR, to reflect an image up to the viewfinder. Because with a film camera, that was the only way to see through the lens. Now, with digital, you don't necessarily need the mirror, although a lot of the original people using digital really liked having that mirror and being able to see through glass and like the really wonderful uh, image you could see through it. However, since you can see a digital image live without a mirror, Camera makers eventually started making what are known as mirrorless digital cameras, like the GH line from Panasonic, the X line from Fujifilm. And these are smaller camera bodies because they don't have to have a mirror. And at least initially, instead of going full frame like the 5D Mark II, these were smaller sensor sizes. Small sensors, small cameras would give you lightweight. They'd give you a little bit of a bigger depth of field, which can be nice when you're filmmaking. I know we all want that tiny depth of field look, but sometimes you want to be able to like hold something in focus, and a small sensor makes it a little easier to do that. So especially like the GH5 exploded with dock makers with its combination of sensor size and mirrorless small lightweight body. However, we love that small depth of field look, and bigger sensors are better in low light. So we've all been sort of excited for full frame mirrorless. 
Weirdly, possibly because their older mirror cameras made so much money, Canon and Nikon haven't really pursued mirrorless cameras, which have left this opening in the market that Sony filled with their full-frame sensor cameras, the Alpha line. They're great in low light. They're great for video. They have small bodies. They're lightweight. Full-frame mirrorless became a huge thing, mostly on the back of Sony. Of course, full-frame sensors have a smaller depth of field, but Sony worked aggressively on their autofocus tools to compensate. Now, after years of rumors and really letting Sony own this market, within weeks of each other, Nikon and Canon have both released full-frame sensor mirrorless cameras. Nikon with the Z6 and the Z7 and the EOS R line from Canon. They're both built around brand new lens mounts, which are going to be backwards compatible with adapters to the older lenses, but are really designed for newer lenses with a smaller flange focal distance. That's the distance between the lens mount and the sensor. That can, of course, be smaller on a mirrorless because you don't have to hide a mirror in there. And a smaller flange focal distance means that there will be a PL mount adapter for this. There'll be a, a bunch of other lens adapters to vintage lenses, and then lenses you buy specifically for the platform can be smaller and more compact. There's some like lens design benefits that can really... Uh, play out here. Right now for filmmakers, Nikon is really positioning the Z7 of the two cameras as being more like video focused. And we're going to have to wait through the fall to see where Canon lands on like the more video focused option. Um, And we're also really excited to see these out in the field and get a sense of what footage looks like from the sort of two heavyweights in the still world finally moving into full frame mirrorless. Next up, One of the big companies already dominant in mirrorless, Fujifilm, have upgraded one of their biggest mirrorless camera, the X-T3. So the X-T3 sensor is actually fairly close to super 35mm size. So it's smaller than full frame, but it's bigger than like the GH5 sensor. And it's been popular filmmakers because of the tradition of the sensor size, really great color reproduction, really great ergonomics. And the headlines for the X-T3 upgrade are that it's going to have 10-bit, HEVC, 400 megabits per second, all-eye internal encoding. Of course, the GH5 did this nearly a year ago, or like a year and a half. But for the longest time, the GH5 was like alone out there with these really great specs. And it's good to see H.265 HEVC rolling out to other cameras. HEVC is like more processor intensive, although the new Macs are custom have custom-built hardware to make it easier, and they offer about twice the image quality for the same size files, so it's pretty exciting. Fuji recently rolled out a more video-focused camera, the X-H1, earlier this year, but it's nice to see them still really focusing on great video features in the X-T3, and um, the only big thing that you're still getting out of the X-H1 over the X-T3 is in-camera image stabilization, which for selfies, for YouTubing, for all sorts of like long lens work, the inch camera image stabilization, the X-H1 is pretty great. So that is still slightly more targeted at filmmakers, but I think you're going to see some filmmakers go for the X-T3. And maybe we'll see some after-release upgrades of some of these features to the X-T3. It'd be interesting to see how that rolls out. Continuing talking about sensor sizes, Cook has now released anamorphic lenses for full-frame sensors. These things are super cool. So traditionally, uh, not really Super 35, but like Academy 35 was the film size that anamorphic lenses were designed to cover, and they were a two-to-one squeeze. So if you were renting like 1980s, 1990s, 1970s anamorphic glass, it was going to cover the smaller sensor, and it's going to give you that like two-to-one doubling or having squeeze. 
as digital cinema moves onto these bigger sensors, like the uh, Monstro and the LF and the Canon C700FF and Venice from Sony, filmmakers have been a little worried because we love anamorphic. It gives beautiful bokeh. It gives beautiful uh, streaking flares. It can change your image in all sorts of other ways. And so Cook has released their anamorphic specifically designed to cover the full, full frame sensor. And they have a 1.8 squeeze, which means if you work with the full resolution, 24 millimeter by 36 millimeter sensor from full frame, that would give you a 2.7 to one aspect ratio, which is boss. Most people are probably not going to do that. They're probably going to crop in a little bit and get like a traditional 239 just because that's what the world is built for. But you could do a 271 if you wanted, and that would be awesome. Now, in the full frame world, like all the sensor sizes are a little different. The LF isn't the same aspect ratio as the Monstro, isn't the same aspect ratio as the C700. So obviously you're going to get a different aspect ratio with each of the sensors you shoot. But I think it's really exciting that Cook has gone for a 1.8 Cook obviously makes stellar glass. The S4s were the dominant choice for like romantic cinema for 20 years. Um, before that, the Speed Pancros, super popular. Cook is one of the top manufacturers of cinema glass. And it's fun to see them using full frame as an opportunity to think new things and come out with this new 1.8 squeeze. People have been doing this with digital. There are some 1.5 squeeze anamorphics out there, I think, from Hawk. Um, but I'm really excited to see these one eights from Cook. I can't wait to see him in the field. All right, everybody, I'll see you next week. And this week on Ask No Film School, something pretty cool happened. A filmmaker named Joshua Ortiz reached out to me and asked if he could use a snippet of the first short podcast in his short film. And I said, yeah, of course, that's awesome. And uh, I'll take this time to remind you that if you haven't listened to it yet, you may want to. The short, The first short podcast I'm talking about, you should listen to it. And it's not just because I'm the host of it. <laughs> so your short, the podcast about your short is now going to be in this. In a short. In a short. Yeah. That's meta. That's cool. Wow. Um, but anyways, he followed up that question with another one, which was, what are your thoughts on trying to get reviews or articles before releasing short films? I'm trying to figure out the best approach and wasn't sure if that was looked down upon or not. This is kind of a tricky one uh, because it all depends on that all holy premiere status that many festivals look for. And I, I know that I've done some interviews in the past where programmers say that they don't really care if your short has been seen or uh, if it's present online. But I think that it's more important than a lot of them actually lead on. Um, your question actually goes hand in hand with this issue because if you're putting out reviews before releasing the short, then it's implied that the short has been exhibited to a larger audience beforehand. Um, What I'm personally doing with my own short is waiting until it's been accepted to at least one festival before putting it online or releasing it for reviews or whatever, uh, just in case there is a festival that has some sort of issue with it being out in the world already. If your short has been in a festival already, then this is a moot issue and you can go ahead and do it. Uh, So I guess it really depends on what your release plans for the short are. If you're going for a straight to online release, there's nothing wrong with releasing reviews um, or like using reviews in your trailer or whatever you're going to be doing with them. I think that it may be hard to find an outlet with enough pedigree to review your film, uh, your short, that it would that it would sway an audience to seek it out. But if you could find one, then it couldn't hurt. Um, do you, Eric, do you know any like publications that would do that? Not really. I, I feel like the biggest like honors for shorts can be like a Vimeo staff pick yeah. and things of that nature. But there may be smaller sites like Hammer to Nail and some other film publications like that that will review shorts. They'll probably do like a roundup 
of mm. shorts, you know, and like here are the five to see at Sundance this year, right. or the ten to see at South by. Uh, but I don't know, if, like, really, just where you can kind of reach out. Um, some shorts, though, you know, a lot of them do come with publicists. Yeah, you know, when they go to a festival. It's and interesting. So, I was actually talking to a publicist uh, at TIFF about this, yeah. about this issue, about like how you know you can market a short with a publicist, and and she said that it's very um, rare that that happens successfully. Um, that a publicist would actually like take on a project like that because. Yeah. Um, I mean, for lack of a more respectable term, it was pretty much like useless. Yeah, hard to sell it. Too. Hard to but, sell it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a lot of times, maybe the producer is playing the publicist role. For yes, short. exactly. Like that's not to say you shouldn't be doing as much as you can to like uh, make it known that your film exists. Uh, which is, you know, my next point. Um, I think that like instead of reviews, you should think about doing. Uh, which you kind of hinted about in your question is just write about your experience on a blog um, or start to share things you learned shooting it with the uh, wider filmmaker community if you have one. Um, no Film School is a great place to start. I mean, that's how No Film School started. Ryan was just writing about his filmmaking experience and then it blew up, <laughs> you know? Um, I don't think it was ever in a self-serving way. Um, and that's also something that I tried to do with my podcast. You know, I... I don't think that there's really any like publicity to be gained for like promoting a short film, but like it was just nice to like share what I'd been through in the hopes that um, maybe you could learn something from that, uh, and then maybe that could like build some buzz around it yeah. if 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 people are able to get some good takeaways from it. And now you're ready for those festival Q and A's. Oh yeah, that come your oh, way. Oh, I've been waiting. <laughs> you've, you've got all the answers. I'm just going to be like, listen to this three hours of me talking like, about I did my a movie. podcast about all this? Yeah. Uh, sorry, guys. We're out of time. <laughs> so whatever you decide to do, uh, good luck with your project. And um, let us know when it's out. And this week for movies on HBO, you can check out The Shape of Water on September 22nd. Guillermo del Toro finally won the Best Director Oscar last year for his movie about fish person sex. The Shape of Water takes place at a top-secret research facility in the 1960s where a lonely janitor, played by Sally Hawkins, forms a unique, which is a one word for it, relationship with an amphibious creature that is being held in captivity. This is a beautiful and very strange movie to watch, but after you watch it, if you feel so inclined, you can actually go to No Film School and download the screenplay to read yourself. Uh, we'll link to it in the post. I wonder if the word fish sex is in the screenplay. I think probably. I wonder how they wrote that out. Maybe it's like the fish has sex with the girl. They disrobe and embrace. Yes. I feel like. In, in water. In water. There's, well, there's yeah, lots of fish. Liquid. I mean, it's got to kind of be. You know? Fluid is everywhere. I think <laughs> I mean, that's... <laughs> there are no towels necessary. <laughs> and also premiering on HBO on September 24th is Jane Fonda in Five Acts. Uh, there have been a lot of docs to emerge this year about powerful women, and here's another great one that made its premiere at Sundance this past January. It is a look at the life, work, activism, and controversies of actress and fitness tycoon we all had a mother who watched these on VHS, I'm sure. Uh, Jane Fonda, of course. It was directed by Susan Lacey, who we had on the podcast to discuss her previous feature, Spielberg. And we will link to that in the podcast post as well. And opening in theaters this Friday is The Sisters Brothers. This film just recently finished up its very brief festival run with prestigious stops at TIFF and the Venice International Film Festival. 
At Venice, its director, Jacques Audriard, beat out some pretty stiff competition in the likes of Alfonso Caron and Damien Chazelle to win the Silver Lion Award for Best Director. His past work includes the fantastic A Prophet and Deepan, and if I'm not mistaken, this marks his first feature in the English language. It tells the story of an infamous duo of assassins, the Sisters Brothers, played by John C. Riley and Joaquin Phoenix, who are chasing down a prospector in 1850s Oregon. The film also stars Jake Gyllenhaal and Riz Ahmed. This is one that I really wanted to see at TIFF, but I didn't get a chance to. Um, I'm excited to see yeah. it. Yeah. I remember, uh, what was the one that he made with Marion Cotillard where she doesn't have legs? Who, uh, the the director? Was that, was that Jacques Cotillard? I don't know. Rustin Bone? Maybe. Okay. <laughs> it was CGI'd, of course. Huh. I think they get she gets bitten by a whale. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a couple years ago. That's something to seek out. <laughs> no, it's very good movies. <laughs> Another movie that's coming out this week is Fahrenheit 11.9, and that's September 21st as well. Everyone probably remembers Michael Moore's Fahrenheit 9.11, a documentary about how the Bush administration allegedly used the tragic event to push forward its agenda for unjust wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Now he's back and cleverly switched the numbers for a documentary examining the quote-unquote Two most important questions of the Trump era, how the fuck did we get here and how the fuck do we get out? It premiered in Toronto last week to generally favorable reviews. Whether it stands to be as much of a phenomenon as his earlier project remains to be seen. And finally, Assassination Nation is coming out September 21st. This movie has been on the festival circuit for quite some time now. It premiered at Sundance all the way back in January and wrapped up at TIFF last week. It was a part of the Midnight Madness program there, and I got a chance to see it on an IMAX screen nonetheless. Stylistically, it's pretty cool, and it subverts a lot of interesting tropes from action and teen movies. Fans of either of those genres might want to check it out. The film is a satire about an entire town that gets hacked and has their secrets spilled out for the public to see. Then all hell breaks loose for a group of teenage girls who are accused of being responsible. And then they start hacking the town yeah. right, with like chainsaws. Yeah, <laughs> well, you'll see. It was written and directed by Sam Levinson, and it stars Odessa Young, Hari Neff, and Suki Waterhouse. I've seen this trailer a lot, too, and I wonder, is it like The Purge? It's kind, like it is kind of like The Purge. It's, okay. uh, I mean, yeah, it's it's kind of like The Purge in the sense of law, lawlessness yeah. that comes about. But um, It looks really graphic. Or it's, like, it's graphic. Yeah. yeah, there's some blood. It's It was good. And now for some upcoming deadlines. With the deadline of Friday, September 21st, is the CineQuest Screenwriting Competition. The competition associated with the CineQuest Film Festival offers $5,000 for the winning feature script and $1,000 for a short or teleplay, as well as recognition during the writer's celebration at the festival. The top 10 finalists receive many empowering benefits, including VIP all-access passes to the CineQuest Film Festival and exclusive writer celebration, plus exposure to leading industry players and inspiring luminaries. And with a deadline of September 30th is the European Short Pitch 2019. Presented by the European Network of Young Cinema, this pitch session offers an international short film screenwriter between 18 to 35 years old, a scriptwriting residency workshop, and co-production forum. European Short Pitch is an initiative aimed at promoting the European co-production of short films. It combines a screenwriting workshop in residency and a co-production forum, bringing together scriptwriters, directors, and industry professionals from all over Europe. 
Selected on the basis of their short film projects, 16 European talents gather to discuss, rewrite, and learn to promote their stories on a European level with the support of four tutors. They eventually pitch their projects in front of a panel of professionals, which is made up of over 55 producers, financers, buyers, and distributors. And here are your festival deadlines for the week. The Boulder International Film Festival has a deadline on September 21st. This is the late deadline. Believe it or not, it takes place in Boulder, Colorado from February 28th, 2019 to March 3rd, 2019. With over 25,000 attendees, A-list filmmaker and celebrity guests, countless opportunities for widespread exposure, and some of the best films and filmmakers working today, Biff was named one of Movie Maker Magazine's... er, No, Mom! One of my mommies, 25 (laughs) (laughs) film festivals worth the entry fee and 25 coolest film festivals, and mommy knows what's best. (laughs) Feature-length films compete for the prestigious Grand Jury Prize of $10,000, and short films compete for the Grand Jury Prize Best Short Film Award of $3,000 cash. The Newport Beach Film Festival has a deadline on September 28th. This is the early bird deadline, believe it or not. It takes place in Newport Beach, California from April 25th to May 2nd, 2019. It screens a diverse showcase of more than 300 films each year to over 54,000 attendees, which is a lot of people. It's a top 100-reviewed film festival on Film Freeway, and it's on Mom's List. It has a ton of prizes. The Nashville Film Festival has a deadline on September 30th. This takes place October 3rd through the 12th, 2019 in Nashville, Tennessee. This is a very early deadline. Uh, Yeah, I think we've called it, instead of early bird, it's like still in the egg deadline. Yeah, it's crazy. It's being incubated. Mm Mm-hmm. The Nashville Film Festival offers $65,000 in cash and in-kind sponsor prizes to filmmakers with winners selected by industry power players, including studio representatives, producers, and fellow filmmakers. The winning short films in the narrative, animated, and documentary short film competitions are eligible for Academy Award consideration without the standard theatrical run, provided the film otherwise complies with the Academy rules. And now for this week's words of wisdom, we have uh, Paprika Steen, who was a director and- Paprika? Paprika. 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 Huh. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Nice name. Yeah. Paprika Steen, uh, the director and actress of the TIFF entry That Time of Year, which is her third directorial feature, uh, Paprika spoke with Dylan Dempsey at the festival about starring in her own work and how she directs other actors. And I thought it was some pretty blunt food for thought that I'd like to share. Quote, actors are very manipulative. If they don't want to do something, they'll talk to you. Wow. (laughs) That's not all. That is good. Right out the gate. Quote, actors are very manipulative. If they don't want to do something, they'll talk your ear off and procrastinate. Sidney Lumet said, if an actor tries to make too many changes in the script, don't change the script, change the actor. Once the right actor finally comes in the door, you will know it. Never direct the actor with more words than you can put on a stamp. Don't overdirect. Figure it out before you go on set. If you start to overanalyze your own directing, your actor is going to die inside. Teach yourself to say what you want to say in very few words. Even if I don't always do it, it's advice I believe in. Uh, I don't know. This just really struck me. I, I thought to make the never direct the actor with more words than you can put on a stamp as part of the article's headline just because it seemed to stand out to me. Um, and I, I do think directing actors can be kind of a uh, challenging task and can be a little nerve-wracking as well. So it is good to maybe not over-explain and, and talk less in situations like this. What do you 
think as well. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if I fully agree with this. It's a little um, harsh. It's, it's a little harsh. It's tough. I mean, like I as a as a director and as someone who went to acting school. I mean, it it obviously it really helps to go to acting school. Um, <laughs> that's not really like advice. I wouldn't say go to acting school, but I was lucky enough to have gone to acting school. Um, and I I like to treat it more as a collaborative process. So I like to hear the actors' ideas. Um, and I think that they bring as much of the, you know, the story and the character uh, in their own preparation. A good actor will do that um, to set. Uh, so I definitely, like, am open to hearing their ideas. I think it's, you know, it's just like anyone else on set where uh, you could, you should listen to them, but you should also, like, keep your own vision in check. Um, and if it's something that enhances your vision, then do it. If it's something that, like, conflicts with your vision, then explain why to them and say no. Yeah. And can and can you like over direct an actor? You um, know? yeah, like, can you, you can direct? totally over direct. I mean, this is interesting because um, I was going to use it as a segue uh, because it's something that Joe Walker said uh, on the podcast that we released uh, earlier this week was that he thinks that the best notes um, that a director can give an editor are actually to treat. He he likes directors that treat editors as if they were actors. Um, so it's like you want to be leading them more with like feelings and um, like tone, um, circumstances. It's just like, like you emotionally know, descriptive. Yeah, terms, emotionally yeah. descriptive terms, things that will like propel their own imagination into um, creating uh, the, the life. Uh, between them and their partner rather than, you know, giving them line readings and like saying that this has to be done this way. So, yeah, I mean, it's it 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 does make sense uh, in some ways to give them limited direction. It's just like limited direction with the leading them on through what you said, like emotional sort of notes. And speaking about podcasts, if you haven't had a chance to listen to that uh, podcast with Joe Walker yet, it was awesome. He's such a cool dude he is the editor for Denis Villeneuve and Steve McQueen exclusively um, which means he's had a hell of a decade Um, and it's only about 25 minutes long most of these interview podcasts that I got at TIFF are very short Uh, so go ahead and give it a listen if you haven't yet today it was it was great Uh, next week for the interview podcast I will be releasing a uh, podcast I did with Fabrice Aranjo, or Fabrice Aranjo. Mm. Um, paprika? A, paprika. Uh-huh. Uh, he is go. He is Jean-Luc Godard's cinematographer, which is like a heavy quotation because his latest movie, The Image Book, had very little actual footage in it. A lot of it was found footage. So he is his editor, he is his cinematographer, he is basically like Godard's right-hand man uh, in putting together whatever crazy ideas Godard has at the beginning and shaping them into something. That's Fabrice's job. So he's a big part of uh, Godard's creative process. Yeah. Uh, and it, it was a, it's a, an awesome interview. Um, it, was, it was great to hear about this guy's life story. He was very cool. Um, and yeah, you should definitely listen to it. And that's uh, about it, I think, for today. That's it. Where Where are you going next week? Where are we traveling to? Uh, we're going to NIF. Oh, New York. We're going to oh, New York. We're going to Lincoln Center. I'm yeah. going to travel it's a t- uh, stipend. <laughs> it takes as long, I think, for me to get from my house to Lincoln Center as it took for me to get from LaGuardia to 
Toronto? Toronto. Really? Yeah. Because <laughs> the subways are so terrible in New York right now. Yeah. That's uh, pretty far uptown. Yeah. So it's yep. usually at least two, two trains. Up at Lincoln Center. Yeah. It's only one it's only one train for me. Oh, really? It still took forever. Nice. Yeah. Okay. But um it was good to get back to New York Film Festival and you know, have everyone be very cranky. Oh yeah. The contrast between like New York and Toronto for these two festivals is pretty remarkable. I was I arrived late to the screening that I was supposed to get to on Monday uh, because of these train issues, and I saw an open seat like right next to the aisle, and uh, the dude who was sitting there, I was like, hey man, uh, excuse me, like could I get by and just like sit? It, there was yeah. there was one person between the aisle and this seat, right. and the guy just completely ignored me. Like, oh, pretended that I didn't even exist. Oh, boy. And wow. that's New York theater for you, folks. You sat on the aisle for and then, the rest no, of the film. I called him an asshole, and then I walked uh, two rows behind, and I found another seat. Look at that. Look <laughs> at that. Very friendly environment here in New York. Uh, great place to watch movies. It can, it can be. Yeah, I love the Walter Reed Theater. Too. Yeah, like, it is and, great. and Alice Tully. I mean, they're both pretty beautiful. But we'll get more into the New York Film Festival next week. We'll do a little preview for you. For now, we're going to sign off. You can follow No Film School at No Film School on Twitter. You can subscribe to the No Film School podcast. If you like this stuff, uh, rate us five stars or however many stars you think we earned. <laughs> the highest number of stars that they have. I'm um, John Fusco. You can follow me on Twitter at Jim underscore Jim. There you go. It doesn't always work with one person it's doing it. It's just like, it's just an interruption. Yeah, it's a little bit more annoying when it's only just one other person doing it. It's, a it's more rude obnoxious. Is what it is. It's a little more obnoxious. <laughs> <laughs> Something about two people doing it at once makes it seem kind of playful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I'm at Eric Lewis, and uh, uh, Charles Hain is at Charles Hain, and uh, yeah, we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.